Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, Roy Faltzgraf of Haxton, Colorado, talks about the unique cover crop strategies that he uses in his operation at Faltzgraf Farms. Roy discusses how his operation has transitioned to continuous cropping with only 16 inches of average precipitation integrating more than 14 crops, reducing herbicide and fertilizer use while increasing profitability and reducing risk. I'm uh, Roy Faltzgraf. I farm with my folks at Faltzgraf Farms. We're in Northeast Colorado, a little town called Haxton. We are a 2000 acre dryland operation and cover crops are, have always been a challenge in this part of the, the world, how they're traditionally seen and, and kind of presented back east. So um, I'm gonna be talking about how I've kind of adapted the system to work for, for us and really look at, you know, when is a cover crop not a cover crop? So we're gonna talk about kind of where we started and then the things that we're working on and, and then kind of what I'm looking at in the future. Um, I'd like to say, you know, on, on the screen, you see the two pictures. That is the evolution of the farm in the past five years. And that is, you know, in the last five years is when we started focusing on soil health. So it really has changed our operation. Um, and with that, there's always the question of profitability and making changes like that. Um, and uh, it's, it's pretty obvious that the things are taking care of themselves. And that's what I found is, as you take care of the soil, the soil kind of takes care of you. Um, so farming in Northeast Colorado is a little bit different than what you see uh, in, in a lot of the country. I mean, we have some of the same similarities, but um, we are, you know, th they say we get 16 inches of rain a year. Um, the old joke was, and I can remember the night it came, and that was real funny until we got nine inches in seven hours this last year. And that's what the uh, upper um, left-hand picture is. And that's, you know, road damage from where it ran out of a field, um, not our field, thankfully. Uh, and you can see the tillage passes in, in some of the washing, which I think is really interesting because you can show that when you till, it actually breaks it up down to that layer. And so moving from that, you, you get the idea of how damaging that is. And then being in Northeast Colorado, uh, we do get significant winds. Um, our, you know, there's a lot of uh, wind generation being built. And part of it is, is with it being either hot and dry or cold and dry, when the wind starts blowing, if, if you don't have good residue and you're not taking care of your ground, it starts blowing. And that's what the picture is um, down at the bottom. That was taken within the last year, once again, not our field. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't take much for that soil to start going in this part of the world. So traditional practices uh, in this area are either wheat and then a row crop or summer crop and then summer fallow. And, and the fallow period is either done with tillage or with chemicals, um, depending if somebody's in no-till or not, 100%. Um, and we'll actually see wheat summer fallow as a rotation. So every other year you get a crop where, um, you know, with, with the row crop, you'll get two crops out of three years. Um, and, and the row crops that we see, we raise, um, th there's people that raise dryland corn, proso millet, occasionally sunflowers, uh, and, or grain sorghum are, are the three crops that are traditionally rotated out here. Um, the evolution of our farm, my father took over operation um, in 1977, but he came back in 1973, he was working uh, with my grandfather, his father-in-law. Dad started raising sunflowers in 1975. Uh, little did we know the impact it would have um, even today in, in seeing what happens with our soil health. He started no-till planting in 1984. Um, 
he started soil testing in 1984, and I actually have all the test results going back that far. The funny thing is, is the soil test results from back then was, you know, this is the results from the wheat stubble um, next to this other field, and they didn't use legals, so we actually have to go back and try to determine where those records came from. Thankfully, our uh, computer accounting and cropping records um, are accessible back to 1985, and that was a really big piece uh, when we started looking at soil health, that uh, having records that complete that far back allow us to recreate things and get a better understanding of what's happening now. We went to continuous no-till in 1999, and when I say continuous no-till, it is no-till. Um, Tillage is one of those things that it would have to be a meteoroid, uh, you know, impact that before I'm going to have to break out some tillage equipment. Ruts because um, trying to fix a little problem that I made gives me no reason to go and destroy what what nature has been working on uh, for those years. Um, and we went to GPS. Um, we got our first GPS mapping in 2001, but we actually helped a company develop their auto steer program in 2005. And with that, it's allowed us to, to work on um, our, our past control and, and making sure we're having as little as compaction issues as we possibly can. So the next question is why covers? And this is one of those things that, um, when I first started hearing about cover crops, I was trying to understand what are they? And, you know, a lot of this goes back to what are you doing with the farming method? Are you rotating or oscillating? You know, the farmers uh, that were raising wheat fallow, that's an oscillation. We're actually not having any rotation in there. And you see that in, in a lot of places. And to be honest with you, we're guilty of that. And we'll see that a little bit further down the road of, you know, when we were guilty and kind of the response that we've seen since then. Um, you know, and, and covers the one thing they talk about is living roots and what kind of time frame and growing seasons uh, really affect that. Um, you know, with, with winter wheat, that's about the longest time frame that traditionally happens. It's about 10 months. Um, but out here, our, our growing season, um, last frost is... May 15th is average and October 15th is, is the other end of that. So, you know, between those two, uh, we have about five months to work with. The problem is, is all, or not all, but a majority of our precipitation comes in March, April, May, and June. Um, this last year, we ended up with 22 inches of rain. It started on April 28th and it stopped six weeks later on June 15th and then it did not rain from then on. So that's some of the challenges that we have to deal with. Um, and then it comes down to what is a cover crop? You know, people say a cover crop isn't harvested. Well, if that's the case, if you're grazing it, that's a form of harvesting. And then with that, that's what, you know, one of the, the arguments is, is by grazing a cover crop, you're harvesting it, but where are you at in terms of residue? Residue in this part of the world is king. The picture I have here is um, I'm actually drilling chickpeas with flax intercrop through stubble and there was a, a weather coming. Um, and if you look on the tire on the seed cart up in the very corner, you can see the tire has mud on it. Um, you had to be careful where you stopped in that field because it was wet underneath that. That is stripper stubble that was waist high that went down with a blizzard. So I've got good coverage and I need to keep that coverage pretty much at all possible costs in here. So that's one of the other challenges when you raise a cover crop out here is depending upon the equipment you have is you go through and you'll actually destroy more residue than what that cover could possibly grow depending upon the year. Um, you know, we have neighbors that do some cover cropping, more the traditional style cover cropping, um, and they're actually grazing some of our stubble this year because they use that cover crop as fall forage. Um, it literally did not come up. It did not germinate. It was that dry. Um, kind of the, 
what we've seen out here is cover crops would respond how they are expected to about 40% of the time. 40% of the time they'll, they'll germinate and they'll get about two to three inches tall and then they'll die due to lack of rainfall. Um, and then 20% of the time they just don't even germinate. So my challenge is, is how can I, you know, justify a, a cropping system that only really works 40% of the time? So I'm going to have to take these ideas and adapt them. And that's one thing that we look at, what's a cover crop versus a cash crop? If I'm harvesting a crash, cash crop, what does my residue look like compared to what happens if I have a cover crop? You know, what are the comparison between that cash crop and cover crop situation. Um, the big thing that people always talk about on cover crops is diversity. And that's one of the things that we had to learn how to address. Diversity is a, is a huge thing. You know, it helps disease, insects, weeds, all those different things really come into that. And then the big thing for us is, do you really have the moisture? Um, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day that does cover cropping uh, down in Kansas um, under irrigation because they're even drier than we are. And he, he just looked at me and flat out said, Roy, if I had to choose between raising a cover crop or a cash crop, I would raise a cash crop every time. Um, because that, that's the thing with farming, we love to do it, but if we never make any money, we only can do it for so long. So for us, these are some pictures um, that, that I always like to include in, in our presentations. For us, looking at regenerative agriculture, and, and to me, regenerative agriculture is soil health. Um, they, it's different words that are looking at the same thing. If you have good soil health, you are regenerating soil and you're developing healthier soils and developing more soil with that. Um, there is a, a website on the internet that has drawings of every single plant you can imagine, including weeds of what the root structure is like. And um, I just have four crops here looking at the root structures. We have wheat, uh, sunflowers. Um, I can never remember what that, that short one is. Uh, and, and then the next one is oats. Um, but looking at those different root structures really start to drive home why the things that we're doing are important for that diversity. We love sunflowers. People claim sunflowers dry out the land. They don't dry out the land. What they do is they don't have a lot of residue. So if you don't raise sunflowers properly and have that lack that residue in this part of the world, you'll evaporate the moisture off of there. When people talk about rainfall amounts, I always like to ask, what's your pan evaporation rate? Pan evaporation is, is how much moisture, if you had a pan of water that sat outside for a year, how much moisture would you be able to evaporate off of it on average? Our pan evaporation rate is 72 inches a year. So we have the ability to evaporate much more moisture than what we ever receive. Um, and so that's why residue is important. That's why sunflowers have a black eye in our part of the world is because they don't have the residue. And so that water evaporates out all winter long and they've dried out the soil when it's actually poor farming methods. Uh, the other two pictures, yes, we got some puncture mine, but that was out in a field about two days after a rainstorm, we had mushrooms. Um, the interesting thing is, is we don't run livestock on a regular basis. And people always say you can't get mushrooms growing in farm fields without livestock. Well, you can, you just have to handle it right. And then the bottom picture is actually a buckwheat plant. Um, and you can see uh, the fungal growth on the roots. Uh, I was out, we had buckwheat that volunteered back in some pinot beans and uh, was out there just checking the field. And I wanted to see what the root systems look like on different ones. And I pulled up this buckwheat plant and looked down and went, wow, what's the chances I actually find the roots of a buckwheat plant that have been inoculated and are growing um, in, in our, our you know, dry soils? Uh, and, and that was a year ago, which 
we had six inches of precipitation on that field for the year. Um, so we see a lot of variance, but we can see why these things are so important to look at. So the first thing that we looked at when we looked at adopting uh, cover crops is Randy Anderson's research. Um, he was with NRCS ARS. Um, he was down here in Akron, Colorado initially, and then he went up into South Dakota. Uh, and he did a ton of research. He wrote a lot of articles uh, for No-Till no Magazine. Um, they're out there on the internet. They're fascinating reading. He has presentations. He has since retired, which is really disappointing to me because the work that he was doing is really impactful for uh, the arid regions. Um, but he ha had a presentation that I attended at the No-Till Conference in Burlington, Colorado, um, talking about using soil or crop rotation to control weeds. And um, his big thing was, is if you follow this rotation, you can reduce your herbicide usage 75% or more. And we have seen a significant decrease in just the short um, four years that we've really been practicing it. But he talks about two hots and two colds. So two cool soil uh, crops or the soil temperature is decreasing, um, followed by two warm soil crops or when soil temps are increasing. Now, if you use a cover crop, you can choose the cover to fit into that rotation that you need. Um, it allows the natural processes to destroy, destroy weed seed because it's going to be four years before you come back on a crop a lot of the weeds are just going to be destroyed through natural actions, insects, um, predation, rotting on the surface, those kind of things. Uh, and then you come back and with the cool season crop, they're usually up and growing and provide cover and they'll choke out the weeds that way. Or if they're a warm seeded crop, you have that chance in the spring to get in there and apply herbicides to control it. So with the timing, it, it gives you a better chance to choke out the weeds or control the weeds um, and, and with simpler methods than, than having to try to control a broadleaf in a broadleaf crop. Um, he has actually talked about uh, developing an organic no-till um, rotation uh, and, and sadly, he retired before he got that far. Uh, but he definitely has some really good information out there. And I encourage people to, to do a little, you know, poking around and reading on, on uh, Dr. Anderson's work. Um, because for us, that was one of the biggest things that, that drove us in this direction. Um, the other thing that really helped is there was research that the University of Nebraska Extension did in Grant, Nebraska, that said the crop that you raise every year essentially is from the rainfall you receive. You know, traditionally in this year, people in this part of the world, people are doing fallow. And with that fallow, they think, well, I am banking all that rainfall. And then the next year's rain, wheat crop will have all the rain from last year. And their um, research showed that at most you, you retain is two inches of rainfall on average. Um, the rest of it either evaporates or percolates. So with that, it's like, okay, that two inches of rain isn't making up for the amount of wheat yield that we would have to increase to cover our carrying costs. In chem fallow in this part of the world, carrying costs per year is $75 to $125 an acre. So that's something that the following wheat crop has to make up for. And it, you know, when wheat's seven, eight dollars, it's really easy to make up for it. But wheat, when it's three dollars, doesn't make up for very much very quickly. So, with that information, it, it gave me the confidence to say, okay, we can go, we can look at continuous cropping, we can look at having roots in the soil every year instead of every other year or uh, two out of three years. Um, and it was one of those things, it was a hard sell. Um, my, my mom told me it wasn't going to work because you know, she grew up on this farm. She, she knows what the weather's like out here. Uh, thankfully, uh, we've been pleasantly surprised. Now, some of the challenges that we faced when we started implementing this rotation, um, 
is we we weren't really paying attention of what happens with volunteer. Uh, and it's it's bit us a couple of times, but with that, um, every time we've learned something from that and we've moved forward and it's actually giving us some more opportunities that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, but it's one of those things you don't follow millet with, with grain sorghum because you can't control that millet volunteer and it will come. Um, now with different harvesting methods that we've worked on, we've helped really reduce that, that millet uh, volunteer problem, um, but it's still there. You don't follow sunflowers with another broadleaf unless you want volunteer sunflowers. Um, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, I had the problem last year. I did it with field peas. And I thought, I can get those field peas off before those sunflowers really take off. And it was all fine and dandy until about middle of May. And we had three days of 105 degree heat. The peas were blooming. The sunflowers grew three feet. Um, and it wasn't possible to harvest the field as it was. So we ended up chopping it for silage. And uh, of course, with that, we now have friends that are at a dairy and, and it gives us more opportunities. So we always get something from that. One of the other challenges is uh, how do you classify some of these crops? What makes a hot crop a hot crop? What makes, or a warm crop a warm crop, I guess. And what makes a cold crop a cold crop? Um, the one that I always struggle with is chickpeas because chickpeas can handle some cool soils, but at the same time, they really like hot growing conditions. Um, so some of that, you kind of have to make those decisions for yourself. Um, and that's one reason that I have disappointment with, uh, with Dr. Anderson's uh, retirement because I couldn't call him up and, and ask him, well, how do you do that determination? How do you see that? Now, um, the other challenge is diversity. You know, if you look at the, the four crops that I have pictured, this would be a, an excellent rotation. Uh, we have spring field peas and winter wheat. So both of those would be our cold crops. We would follow that with corn. Uh, that corn, if it looks a little odd, it's uh, short-statured corn drilled on 12-inch centers. Um, I don't like working on planters, so I'd rather use my air seeder than I would uh, work on my planner. Uh, we have found it actually makes a huge impact because it closes the canopy so quickly. Um, it, uh, in our drought conditions, it produces a significantly better corn crop. And then uh, proso millet. So, you know, there's not a lot of diversity there. You look at it and yeah, there's four different crops, but those four different crops, three of them are grasses. And, um, you know, so we got to kind of start stretching ourselves and how can we get something other than another grass? I, I guess I could do the thing with, with oats, wheat, corn, and, and proso, and that way I'd have four grasses, too cold, too warm. Um, but that's something we definitely want to move away from because it really helps us with weed control um, down the road. And the other challenge that comes with that diversity is marketing. Um, where do you find markets? It's one thing that uh, I've, I've started to become pretty passionate about it, that there are markets available. You just have to know where to look. And um, that's one of the things that we have to have to make our, our system work is if we don't have a market for it, well, then we're raising a cover crop that we just don't even harvest. So that's one of those you know, working on developing that market and come come to find out there's a lot more things out there than what uh, what people traditionally believe. Uh, I joke now that, you know, when I started this five years ago, I struggled to find a market for anything other than what the local grain elevator take. Um, and they take a lot. We're really, really lucky to have um, them with the diversity that they encourage through what, what crops they receive. But uh, now I, I say I could go to the refrigerator and get the milk out and I'll find another market behind the milk. Um, it just seems like once you know where to look, um, th there's a lot of possibilities and a lot of things that, that I feel are, are really optimistic um, if, if for agriculture.
I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer. Visit MontagMFG.com or call Montag at 712-517-2775. Now, let's get back to the podcast. So now we've adapted this practice. Now we need to adopt it so it'll work for us. Um, And this is the one thing that we, having those computerized records, we were able to look back. And when we first started doing this, we first started Haney testing, um, we were getting results that we didn't understand. Uh, And so in the attempt to understand, it's like, well, what, what's the history? And so my dad asked, well, what do you want? And I said, could you give me 20 years of cropping history on all of our fields? And that produced this lovely chart, uh, which really starts driving some points home and, and really starts helping um, understand what's going on and why we were having the struggles we were having. Um, you can see I, I started focusing on soil health in 2017. Prior to that, if you see a blank, that was fallow. So if you look at the top two fields, we those top two fields are on the same quarter. Uh, they're north and south of, of a, a dry creek that runs through it. Well, it wasn't dry last year, but it usually is. Um, the, the south field isn't bad. The north field should have never been broke out of sod. It's a horrible field. That's what we've always said. The bottom of it, it follows this creek bed. It's actually gravel in the bottom. Um, the edge of the field is literally a gravel mine. Um, there's a gravel pit there. So it tells you how challenging those soils are. And then the north edge of that north field is actually white rock hills. Uh, the rock hills that we get, they're a calcium rock. Um, they are hard. Uh, they, they, they can break equipment. You get it stuck in equipment. You only can chip it out of there but we have a hundred feet of elevation change in that field. And so that was always a struggle of how are you gonna harvest this field if we're gonna raise something else? Um, you know, because you gotta, really the only way to cut that field is with the terraces. And how are you gonna cut with the terraces when you went in there and you planted corn or you planted sunflowers? So that was really a struggle. And so that's why it was wheat and, and fallow. Um, and I don't blame anybody for it because that was the limit of our ability and the limit of our knowledge. And um, talking with my father, that had been wheat fallow for as long as he could remember. And I have a feeling that has been wheat fallow pretty much since it came out of sod 100 to 100, uh, you know, 100 to 120 years ago. Um, so that's really been one field that we've kind of focused on. Of our soil health, that was our worst field when we first did our Haney test in 2018. It was our worst field by a long shot. Um, it beat out some of the other, or some of the other fields beat them out by, you know, they were marginally better. Well, what made them marginally better? They had sunflowers 15 years ago, and that made a difference in the soil health scores. We had fields that are side by side and one field would be quite a bit better soil health score, a couple of points better than its neighboring field. And it's like same soil type, same moisture, but why why is there a better health soil health score? And it comes down to what, what was in that field. And with this, we could look back at it. And that's when we realized that sunflowers were so impactful. My dad stopped raising them in, um, in 2006, uh, because we were going through a really dry time, he'd always heard that sunflowers dry out the soil. And even when things are wrong, if you hear it often enough, you start to believe it. So he stopped raising them in 2006. Um, he admits that's one of the, the things that he would have done different if he knew then what he knows now. 
I brought them back in 2017. We started drilling them in 2017. And then we got a, a, a header that we could combine them. It has nine inch pans. So we could combine them with the terrace. So that suddenly gave us the ability to combine a different crop. And the first crop that we got in there because of what was going on with soil health in that field, we went with sunflowers because we knew the sunflowers could make a difference there. The interesting thing is, is that year I screwed up the seeding rates on the sunflowers. We seeded them way too heavy. Come to find out that's actually what we should have been doing. And that north field, which is a disaster, had places in that field that were over 100 bushel to the acre on sunflowers. That field averaged over 2,000 pounds an acre. 2,000 pounds an acre. Um, and when we got done with that, my dad and I talked about it, and he goes, "Well, maybe, maybe that field isn't as bad as I thought it was." Um, we put flax in it. We had a, a stand issue. It was oats this last year. We raised decent oats. It's going to Milo this year. We're getting that diversity in there. Um, you know, I, I, I did this, the, the top chart my dad put together that I've since maintained, and we've actually gone back and, you know, challenged the chart and found things that, you know, the cropping records were actually off and we were able to determine other ways. And looking at the chart that's there, there's actually a couple of holes that's been filled because, you know, there's no reason, there's no way we would be summer follow in 2000 in South School and follow it with sunflowers the next year. We'll come to find out that actually was wheat. Um, but I took that top chart and I created the bottom chart. The bottom chart is our cropping for 2022. We will be raising milo corn, buckwheat, wheat, oats, sunflowers, proso, yellow field peas, chickpeas, pinto beans, black eyed peas, and there will be flax in there. And this is actually old um, because we have since added camelina. So, you know, we, we've gone from the traditional raising wheat, milo, or wheat, sunflowers, or wheat, proso, or just wheat. Because um, if you look in 2007, dad just raised wheat. We've gone from one crop to 14 crops. 15 crops, we've been as high as 17 crops. And part of that is in, in response to the market because people know we raise crazy things. They'll come to us and say, hey, we have a specialty crop. Can you do this for us? Because um, we have more expertise raising stuff than nobody else knows how to raise in, the, in this environment. Um, we, we've been raising buckwheat for a number of years. We were actually told by RMA this last year that they will not insure buckwheat in Northeast Colorado because buckwheat does not grow in Northeast Colorado. It's actually one of our highest profiting crops. So, you know, with this, we've had to adapt it. And we've taken that chart. And the first, when we first had that chart in 2017, I went through it and compared our soil health score to what, how many different types of crop had been in that field over time. And we found that our best fields had the most variety and our worst field was wheat and fallow. So, you know, soil bi biology likes that variety. And that's one big thing about diversity is we're feeding that biology every year. And if you think about your favorite food, my favorite food, believe it or not, is potato soup. I love a good potato soup. But if I had to eat potato soup every day for every meal for the rest of my life, I would not like potato soup after you know, a couple of weeks because I can go on potato soup for a while. Now, if I change that up and have potato soup and then vegetable soup, that's a little variety, but that's like going wheat and corn. Those are both grasses. We need more diversity in there. And that's where we brought in, you know, we brought in a bunch of legumes. We've all, we had been raising broadleafs, our sunflowers, for a long time. We brought them back. We added buckwheat, another broadleaf. This year, we added camelina. It's a brassica. So by having that diversity in my diet, it, it makes me healthier. It's The soil is the exact same way. If we don't have diversity in the soil, we're not going to have healthy soils. And so, you know, one way, way people get diversity in soil is through their crop cover crop blends. Because I don't have a way to harvest my cover crops because I need to generate that revenue, 
I am now raising those crops that you usually find in cover crop blends as crops. Um, the other thing that diversity factor does for me is it really is really big on risk management and e uh, efficiency. If you look at 2007, when it was just wheat, uh, we had about 800 acres of wheat that year. One hailstorm, one major weather event would have taken out our entire harvest. Now with a couple of crops, there's a chance that you could miss a major you know, weather event. <clears throat> this year, our camelina is gonna come off in the middle of June. Um, our black eyed peas and our late drilled crops, they won't even be tall enough for hail to affect in the middle of June. So there won't be a single weather event that'll affect all of our crops. I've taken that risk and I have spread it out through the entire year. I start drilling, well, camelina, is drilled in November. Um, we put it in December because that's when we finally got our seed. But our, my main drilling is March through the middle of June. My harvesting starts in the middle of June and goes through November. Um, and then I stop and drill winter wheat uh, in early October. But with that, I've spread out that risk of when my growing crops are. Um, and I've also spread out my equipment use. So that way I don't have, you know, seven, 800 acres a week that has to happen in the next week. I don't have, you know, 500 acres of corn that needs planted in the next week. Um, you catch one rainfall and it kind of screws up your whole schedule. This way, everything's spread out that I only get to have to do a couple hundred acres every week or two um, and harvest is the exact same way. So with the diversity in my rotation, it gives me, um, yeah, I'm harvesting more crops. I'm actually harvesting more acres because I'm harvesting every field every year. But I actually am a lot less stressed because I've spread that out. Cover crops would give you that option. But once again, I want to be able to harvest that. I don't have livestock. So this is my response. Um, this is how, you know, adoption is a big thing. When I speak, I always talk about listen to what I'm doing, don't try to copy what I'm doing. Because I honestly believe our soils know us. And if you go out there and try to implement what I do, your soil is gonna be like, this is not our thing. Um, so it, it takes that adaption period, you have to work through it. Um, you know, you have to make it your own. So when you listen to this, you're like, yeah, this guy is in an arid region. What, what can he help me? Well, part of it is, is I'm in an arid region. If it works for me, there's a chance you can make it work for you. Um, and so you have to learn how to adapt it. And that's one of the things that we've really learned going through this process. We've learned how to adapt all kinds of things. Um, it used to be, you know, when, my, when I came back and took over, my, my father told me, I don't want to stand in the way of progress. I fought with my grand, with, he fought with my grandfather for years trying to make changes and it, progress was slow. He's like, I don't want to stand in the way of that. Initially, he was really resistant. There was things that he's like, I, you know, just not sure, uh, you know, how this is going to go raising beans, but I told you I'd, I'd be hands off as long as you can show me that it could be profitable. And it's paid off. And the sad thing is, is we've gotten to the point where all my funds gone because he has no more shock value. When I come home and say, I'm going to raise dry uh, upland rice. He's like, okay, where's your market? Um, but it's, it's made things a lot less stressful. And we've all also changed our risk because we've stretched that out. So what we found when we developed this chart and then down below, I actually created spreadsheets and you can see them across there for every year, what crop was in what field, and then how many acres of each one of those crops did we have? And I told, you know, one of the biggest thing we found out, um, you know, soil health, yes, there's a difference. Weed control, yeah, we had more weed problems in the field that was just wheat than the field that had some variety in it. But then it comes down to revenue. You know, I told my dad, I understand why you were never getting ahead because you're only farming two thirds of the farm every year. So if you only have two thirds of the, the revenue and 100% of the expense, it, it's really hard to break even. Um, 
And with going to this continuous cropping, with going to this very diverse rotation, um, our revenue has increased significantly, and it's more than one third. Uh, people ask me, you know, is soil health worthwhile? I said, absolutely. They said, well, do you make more money? And I said, well, we used to be break-even farmers before, and we'd hope every now and then we'd catch a good crop and, and we'd be able to have profit every five years. Now, um, our, our accountant told us we better get used to paying taxes. Um, our revenue has tripled. Our expenses have doubled. You take whatever number you want, multiply it by three, multiply the same number by two, the revenue is always going to be bigger. And um, it's allowed us to do some really cool things and it's really allowed us to adapt. Now with this, yeah, I don't do cover crops, but I am starting to do some other things. I do intercrop, I intercrop uh, flax with chickpeas. It controls the ascochyta in the chickpeas very well. The chickpeas even uh, evenly mature. So uh, with the flax in it, at harvest, um, you know, we don't have to desiccate. So not only do we save an operation, we also can deliver our legumes and say there's been no desiccant applied to this crop. So, um, you know, we're, we're starting to do some of those intercroppings. We're starting to do companions. I like to follow my uh, buckwheat crop with sunflowers. Buckwheat likes, likes to volunteer. That grows up in that sunflowers. Um, it doesn't compete with the crop, but it's down in there and it's providing me cover after harvest. Um, so there's ways that we can take these cover crop principles and adapt them to make them our own and to, to make them work for us versus this is how you have to go out and do it. So uh, the, the big thing that, that I like to watch is what, is what is our trends? Are things headed the right direction? You know, when you do a soil te test, it's kind of a snapshot at that little moment, at that little spot in the field. But if you look at that same general area over 20 years, is your organic matter increasing? Is your fertility increasing? And that's where the Haney test really gives us a lot I mean, we're carrying over 70 to 80 pounds of nitrogen after crop, every crop almost every year. We harvest a decent crop of sunflowers and we already have 70 pounds of nitrogen hanging out there in the soil waiting for us um, for this next year. So that's helping us reduce our inputs. Um, sometimes the most profitable thing is not spending money in the first place. We've, we've cut our fertilizer use by over 50%. People ask me, well, what are you going to do for fertilizer this year uh, because of the prices? I said, well, I started doing things five years ago that fixed my fertilizer problem this year. We're going to spend less on fertilizer in 2022 dollar-wise than we did in 2016. So significant impact in adding this diversity and creating this this rotation that doesn't look like what normal is in our part of the world. Now, I'm doing it with all cash crops. Some people are going to do it with cover crops. That's great, but find a way that, do it, that does it that helps with that financial piece. I mean, we went to uh, get a, a new piece of equipment. We talked to the banker about what, what we were looking at. The banker scribbling down a couple of notes. And we're talking about, well, we're thinking about buying this. And at the end of the conversation, the banker said, well, I'll take it to the loan committee tomorrow. I'm pretty sure it won't be a problem. We hadn't even made a decision yet, but our bank is willing to work with us because they see the positive outcomes that we're getting. And they see that we're being financially or, or profitable. Um, and, and we can take some hits where traditionally we couldn't. So where do we go from here? Um, this is something that I've started working with about four years ago. Uh, it's something that I think is gonna work great in arid regions, but it's not gonna be one of those wetland kind of things. If, if, if I farmed in the mid, Midwest or on the East Coast somewhere where I got a lot of rain, I think this could be kind of dangerous, um, but it works well for us. Um, 
I am working on getting Dutch white clover established in all of our fields. Dutch white clover, if you're not familiar with it, is a very short clover. It's uh, about eight to 10 inches tall. It's a perennial. Um, it'll fix up to 200 pounds of nitrogen per year, depending upon the stand. But the great part about it is, is once it's shaded, about 45% shaded, like it is in that bottom picture, it actually starts to go dormant. It will prune itself back and um, it won't compete with your crop. Now, the other thing is, is it's tough. Uh, we've gone out, we've hit it with glyphosate, we've hit it with 2,4-D, we've hit it with styrene. We have not changed our chemical program in these fields and we are slowly establishing a, a good stand. Um, the middle picture is actually the first spring after I, I integrated it in one of the fields. That first year, you go out in the, the field and you might see a plant like that's in the top picture. Just a little tiny, barely anything there. That next spring, I went out and looked down the row and it's like, holy mackerel. The second year... I you go, go across the field in a side-by-side -side, and there is clover everywhere out there. Um, so I actually have continuous living roots for 34 months in uh, an arid region. Um, and we're starting to see some really interesting things. We're starting to see that Palmer amaranth really doesn't like to grow close to clover. Um, we're seeing that it isn't affecting our yields they're hanging out there in the, you know, down below the canopy and after harvest, away they go. So we are actually having a cover crop, but we're not having to go out there and seed it, but it's also out of the way so it doesn't affect the growing crop. Um, we go out there, we apply our herbicide, it knocks the leaves off of it. And by the time the growing crop uh, is going, when it comes back, it's already shaded. The other thing is, is I have bees. And so this provides me something that blooms late because after you harvest the crop, then it'll bloom. So I have things blooming in, in September and October where traditionally um, there's nothing out there for the bees. So where are we going now? <laughs> we have a lot of insanity going on here. Uh, alternative crops, yes, I'm serious about raising upland rice. Uh, I finally have a good lead on some seed. We're gonna give it a shot. Uh, with our changing climate, uh, at some point, wheat might not work here. Well, rice will, as long as I can find some good dryland varieties. Different weed control methods. We got an electro weeder this last year. Um, it was driven by the, the, the problem with the sunflowers and the peas. I am now going to be integrating sunflowers in all my legumes and then go out and I'll control them after they're up, you know, before they, they bloom. Uh, and this way, it'll provide structure and um, shade for these crops that they're starting to get going in some of the really our, our hot, dry times. So we're actually working on creating microclimates in the field inside that canopy. And then we're looking at composting, uh, ferments, some things like that, Korean natural farming. That's what the picture is in the bottom there. Um, magic juice, who knows where it's gonna go. But uh, as we progress, as we continue, Diversity is key and, you know, dealing with some of these other methods is really helping drive our soil health. So if you have any questions or anything, this is a picture of our bee yard um, on a nice sunny spring day um, and uh, be more than happy to answer any questions that people may have. Well, thanks so much, Roy. Um, I do have a couple follow-up questions for you. Um, at the beginning of the presentation, you mentioned uh, rotating through crops or oscillating crops. Can you expand on that a little more and, and what you mean by that? Well, an oscillation is a movement between two positions. A light switch is an oscillation. It's either on or off. There's not much of a rotation if you're in either one location or the other. Uh, rotation implies there is movement around a circle. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to poke fun at, at, at the guys in the mid Midwest a little bit. I, I understand where you're coming from, but 
corn and soybeans is not a rotation. It's an oscillation. The field is either corn or it's soybeans. It's nothing else. So by adding some things to get some rotation in there, and that's the nice part about that, that uh, two hots and two colds with Dr. Anderson is it forces you to have a rotation because you, you know, your corn and soybeans, those are your warm weather crops. What are you going to do to get some colds in there? Um, so with that, it, it, it creates that dynamic where you, it's not one or the other. All right, great. My other question is, uh, how do you go about finding markets for all of these different crops that you raise? Um, <laughs> that's a separate one hour presentation in itself. Uh, the, the funny thing is I gave that presentation the other day and uh, this lady came up to me afterwards and said, uh, that was three hours of information in one hour. The biggest thing is start looking. Um, Believe it or not, get the yellow pages out. I, I never realized the number of bean companies. And when I say beans, we're talking dry edible beans. The number of bean companies that are in my area. There's seven different com companies within 100 miles. Um, and, you, you know, you start getting a reputation. The, the local elevator uh, is working with sustainable oils about getting camelina rays. Because we have the reputation of raising crazy things, we get phone calls from companies saying, would you be willing to try this for us? And the funny thing is you ask, well, how, you know, how do you raise it? No, well, we don't know. It's like, well, you know, we're going to take the best shot and go with it um, and, and figure it out on our own um, because we've had that experience. The other thing is, is we do direct marketing. Uh, and that's something that people always... Uh, are, are hesitant about. You see all of our, our logos. Um, we do honey, we do flour, we have a line of gluten-free mixes. Um, my wife makes beauty products from the beeswax. So we're doing some direct marketing. So that's another thing. We're not doing 100%, but each one of these different avenues, and, and part of it is just stepping outside of your comfort zone um, because most farmers' relationship ends at, at, the, at the grain elevator, um, at the processing plant where they go and they roll the trap open. That's their last relationship with it. And they, they look at that as, a, as it's a commodity. Um, I like to challenge people to think that everything that you raise is actually food. It might not be humans eating it, but it's going to be livestock eating it. It's going to be yeast eating it if it's going to an ethanol plant. There's always something's going to be consuming it. So it's important to look at the little details, to clean things up. You know, once you change your perspective from commodities to food, um, it, it really starts driving home, would I feed this to my family? Um, and with that, then you start looking at the different markets, what are the different things that I can raise, and, and it kind of snowballs from there. Thanks to Roy Faltzgraf for today's discussion. The full transcript will be available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to Montag Manufacturing for helping to make this CoverCrop podcast series possible. From all of us here at CoverCrop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening.